Welcome, everybody. Good morning. <laughs> we just know we're not perfect people. We just are people who've been changed by God to make a change in the world, and we have mistakes. But we're so glad to be able to be with you here this morning, uh, and we're excited to be able to continue in our series in the book of James. If you're just joining with us, uh, my name is JP. I would love to have an opportunity to meet you, and, and you are right in the middle, or kind of, I guess, near the tail end of a series we're going through uh, throughout the summer through the book of James. And if you received your handout or the bulletin on the way in, on the front, we have blank spots uh, for our notes for this morning. Uh, on the other side of that, we have the main points. Every week, if you're newer with us, we like to have one main point that we take home, uh, and then we kind of build the message out of that based off of that main point that comes from the passage. And so the main points on the flip side, the back side of your sermon notes this morning, that way you can always look back at them. If you ever want to catch up, you can catch up at the sermons at palmerado.com messages, as well as being able to um, look at them at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. So with that said, we are diving in to James chapter 4 uh, through James chapter 5, verse 6. If you will join me in a word of prayer as we open up the word, the word of the Lord together and we see what he has to reveal to us. Father, we thank you so much that you are here in this place. Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you are welcome here. We pray that you would flood this place and that we would recognize that you are with us, that you never leave us nor forsake us. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us in this room and each and every person that's listening online later. I pray that each person who hears my voice now knows that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved by us as a church, but even more so that they are deeply loved by you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I remember uh, when I was in high school, I remember watching... Uh, this movie it was like a romantic comedy because that's what I would watch. Um, anyone ever heard? You guys know this uh, movie? A Want to Remember? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Awesome. The seven of you, we can watch it later. I love it. Um, there's a part in which it's it's basically it's a teenage love story, and one of the parts where it happens is the guy is taking um, the the girl that he's falling in love with, and she had always had this dream to be in two places at once. And so he drives her to the state border, and she has one foot. He says, put one foot here and put one foot there. And she's like, what are we doing? He's like, now you're two places at once. And she's just super excited because it's like one of her bucket list items. And, and this is actually something that um, our Ecuador team had an opportunity to do uh, just a few, just last month when they went to Ecuador because uh, we had high school students who went there led by a team of Dan and Michelle Lewis. And... They actually got to, many of you uh, may know, may not know, that Ecuador in Spanish just means equator. And so there's a place in which there's literally, you're on the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. And we've got a couple pictures here. Um, the first one is the team of students and how they're literally right in the center. Um, one team is on the north side, one team's on the south side. And then if we could go to the next photo, uh, it's the idea they're kind of right in the middle there. That's including Dan and Michelle as the leaders. And it's this idea of being able to kind of be in two places at once, that that's the tourist attraction, that's the place where people come to be able to say, I'm in two places at the same time. I'm, I'm in the north as well as I'm in the south. And it's just a visual of this idea, let's keep it up for a second, in which the people who are sitting there or standing there, and the whole idea is that you kind of want to be in two positions at once. Or, or maybe, rather, you want to be in this middle position where you're not either fully on the north or fully in the south. And, and so the joy or the, or the moment, the reason it's a tourist attraction is because you get to have this moment of kind of right being in the middle. And 
It's a simple uh, analogy, it's a simple idea, but what this kind of shows us, and we can take it down now, is this idea that we recognize that this is sometimes what we like to do when it comes to our relationship with God in the sense of we kind of have one foot in the world and one foot in the word. We have one idea of I want to walk with the Lord and I want to be able to pursue him, but on the other side it's, but I want to still do things the way that I want to do things that maybe we live a certain way on a Sunday morning and then we live differently Monday through Saturday. Or maybe we live at home and, and at home we are kind of withdrawn and it's difficult and, and, and we feel like we just want to be ourselves and by that we shut down or we get lost in technology. Whereas at work or at school, maybe we have lots of energy. Maybe we're outgoing. Maybe we want to be able to share with the Lord with people. Maybe it's something where at work we cut corners. And we say, okay, no, I live for God, but I need to do this in order to survive in this dog-eat-dog -dog world. And so we can have this moment where we're one foot following the world and one foot following the word. And when we do that, one foot on each side is no way to walk with the Lord. And so there's no middle ground here. There's not an opportunity for us to have one foot here and one foot here. And so our main point for this morning, as we look into James chapter 4 through James 5 verse 6, our main point for this morning is that there are only two positions. You can't have a middle ground. There are only two positions we have before God, submission or opposition. According to the passage, we're going to see that we either have the opportunity to submit to him in all of our ways, to have our foot fully in the word, or we oppose him and have our foot our lives fully within the world and so if you're with us in james chapter 4 if you brought uh, your own bible or if you have a bible app with you we'll be in james 4 uh, if you didn't happen to bring a bible we have a bible for you in the seat uh, rack right in front of you and we're on page 1883 1883 and as you're turning there in your notes <clears throat> our main or the next section there is talking about how there's no third position Again, there's only two positions we can have before God, either submission to him or opposition against him. And so there's no third position. There's no middle ground. We see this. The first note underneath that is this idea that our greatest battle is within us, not among us. Our greatest battle is within us, not among us. Let's read the scripture together and see how that plays into the idea that there's no third position. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So how does this point to the idea that there's no third position when it comes to following God? That we either submit to him or we're opposed to him. This idea, it, it goes back to what we had talked about a few weeks ago in our uh, study of James. If you weren't with us, we talked briefly about how the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon uh, was recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, that Matthew 5 is all about one, the one section of Matthew 5, is this whole section about that we, how we underestimate our own badness, 
The idea that we think, okay, I haven't actually murdered someone. And then Jesus says, yeah, but if you've held anger within your heart, that's murdering them. Or I haven't actually committed adultery, but if you thought lustfully about someone else, then that's adultery. He talks about how we think we're okay because we underestimate our own badness. Matthew 6 talks about how we overestimate our own goodness. The idea that we think that by praying in front of people, that by fasting, that by, doing, by giving to the needy, that we think that that is what saves us. So we think that we are so good, like the Pharisees, like, well, I fast and I pray and I, and I do all these things. And he's like, you've re received your reward here on earth because you do it in front of people and you do it to get credit. So Matthew 5 is we underestimate our badness. Verse, or Matthew 6 is we overestimate our goodness. And then Matthew 7 is basically just a line in the sand where he says, listen, there's a narrow road, there's a wide road. There's a tree that bears good fruit, there's a tree that bears bad fruit. There are people who build their lives upon the rock of hearing the words of Jesus and obeying them, and there are people who build it on sand. It's just this line in the sand. And so that's the structure of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What does that have to do with our passage this morning? Is that this section reveals to us or reminds us that the quarrels, the fights, the issues, the struggles, the things that we have come from within. The battle, the greatest battle, is the battle, as verse 1 says, the battle within us. The battle within the things that we know we shouldn't do that we keep doing. And then the battle to want to do the good things we want to do, yet we fail to do them, as Romans 7 talks about. And so we all have battles within us. We are all led astray by our desires to the point where maybe we start coveting things. We're willing to kill for things. Maybe we don't physically kill, but again, if we hold anger within our hearts, according to Jesus, that's murder. That's killing someone. So we are willing to hold anger, to hold bitterness, to, to kill people, to be able to step on people in order to elevate ourselves. And in so doing, we recognize that we don't ask God because our motives are wrong. We know that we don't ask God to give us these things because we know that so often we just want to use them for our own good, so we're not even going to ask. That we underestimate our own badness, and we all need a Savior who can rescue us, not just from the works of our hands that we do that are wrong, but from the thoughts in our hearts that cause us to be led astray, willing to kill or destroy or tear people down. That there is no third position because all of us have this battle within us. Not just among us, but deep within because of our sin nature. The next point is that we must choose a side between the world and God. We must choose a side between the world and God. Now, as you're writing that down, does anybody remember the Alamo? Get it? Because that's the freight. Yeah, thanks. Um, no, so the Alamo is a battle that happened in which there was a General Santa Ana of the Mexican army was coming on, converging on the Alamo in, in San Antonio. And that Lieutenant Colonel William Barrett Travis led the people to be able to fight to hold the Alamo as long as they could. And they lasted for 13 days until they were overrun. And yet, those 13 days allowed Sam Houston to be able to gather more troops at San Jacinto and then be able to fight off the Mexican army as the Texans were trying to receive independence from Mexico. And so because of that, there's that famous phrase, remember the Alamo, that that's what Sam Houston would say in order to fight the battle. Remember that there were people who laid down their lives to 
give Sam Houston and his troops time to be able to get ready to fight back. Now, we have a picture of the Alamo here, and I, I've not been there, um, but it's a, it's a very famous picture. It's a very famous idea. But one story, that this is a legend. So off the bat, I just want to be clear, there's not necessarily um, proof that this happened or didn't happen, but there's a legend of a line that is drawn along the floor. If you could go to the next photo here, there's a line that's just drawn straight across. And you can see that there's a plaque on there. Let's zoom in on the plaque. And this is what the plaque says. That legend states that in 1836, Lieutenant Colonel William Barrett Travis unsheathed his sword and drew a line in the, on this ground before his battle-weary men, saying, those prepared to give their lives in freedom's cause, come over to me. And so that plaque in that line, whether it was legend, whether it was true, they drew the line in the sand and the idea, or the, in the ground, and the people there had to make a choice. And out of the 180 troops that were there, 179, according to the story, crossed over to fight, and one left. And yet, we see this idea that they chose that there was a line in the sand moment in which you have to say, you're either choosing here to fight and be willing to die, or you're choosing to flee, but either way, we must choose a side. And so James 4, 4 through 6, tell us about the need we have to choose a side between the world and God. You adulterous people, verse 4 starts out, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that, his, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Again, we get this idea that the humble are those who are submitting to God. The proud are the ones who are in opposition to him. There are only two positions we can have before God, either submission or opposition. There's a line in the sand that is drawn and we have to choose. Because as James says, even friendship towards the world is enmity between God. There is no third position. There is no way to do both and. This is an either or proposition, not a both and. And it is so clear that we need to draw a line in the sand, that God has drawn a line in the sand that says, are you going to read my word? Are you going to pray and have a new life with me? Are you going to be able to say no to the things that are of this world in order to say yes to the things that I have for you? Will you be willing to sacrifice and submit and not to put your own way above my own ways for you? Will you be willing to do that and submit? Or even if you think you have one foot in one in the word and one foot in the world, or even if you think, well, I'm not that bad because look at all the other people who are way farther behind the line where I'm just kind of tiptoeing in and I could kind of go back and forth as much as I want. Even friendship with God is, en or friendship with the world, rather, is enmity towards God. The line is very thick. and We have to choose a side. So what does it look like, the call to submission that we see in verses 7 through 12? According to James, in your notes, it says there are several ways we submit to God. And I'm just going to start reading a couple, like a verse at a time. And as you see that on the notes, there's several ways we submit to God. We're just going to start listing the call to submission, the different activities and mindsets that God calls us to in order to submit to him. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Number first thing, number one, resisting the devil, resistance. That's the first way that we submit to God is that we resist. We, we keep him away. And the opposite of that resistance is that familiarity, right? Instead of resisting the devil and keeping him away, we, we think how close can we get without being burned? How close to the line can we step without sinning? And we fail to see that if we're asking that question, again, we're asking the wrong question. Why are we on the wrong road in the first place? The next thing he says right here in verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. That the next way that we submit to him is by intentionally getting closer to him, by nearness with him. If you are struggling this morning and you are crying out to God or, or maybe you're not crying out to God because you haven't reached out to him yet and you're trying to, quote, figure things out a little bit better, yet the more you try to intellectually figure out a solution in your life, you recognize how far gone you really are thinking that we could do it on our own. But reality is if this verse, I hope and I pray, this is the kind of verse that you can tattoo on yourself. This is the kind of verse that you can be able to put on a phone wallpaper or put inside your, your wall or your room, whatever it is, to come near to God and he will come near to you. It's not a, it's not a possibility. It's a fact. It may not happen when we want or how we want or exact the circumstance we want, but if we come near to God and we ask him in the same way that in Matthew 14, when Peter starts sinking, he says, Lord, help me. And the next verse says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand. He's with us. He will not leave us nor forsake us. Doesn't mean it's always easy, but that's one of the things we do. Now, what happens is that we want to draw near to God as opposed to keeping him at arm's length. And just to get a, a little visual of it, uh, my, when I started to, uh, when we had a Shaylin, uh, I did a photo a day for a year um, on social media. And so I wanted to just recreate the, the Heisman pose. And so that's Shaylin instead of a football, and that's a diaper instead of, I don't know, whatever. So um, we keep God at a distance. And isn't it interesting, maybe... Maybe interesting isn't the right word. Maybe it's, isn't it convicting that out of those first two things, it says resist the devil, yet we try to draw as near as we can to him without sinning. And then it says come near to God, and yet we often kind of keep God at an arm's length, at a distance. We switch those all too often. And if we were to get that order correct, how much different would our lives be? Because when we keep God at arm's length, we say, God, I want the blessings and the good things that come. I want the, the blessings that come from being in your wake, yet I don't want you to actually to have to change my life. I, I want to get all the good things without any of the hard things. And we know that that's just not how it works. We can't have one foot in the world and yet hope to get all the blessings from the Lord. We cannot straddle the line. We must make a choice. And so the call to submission is to switch. We often resist God, but we need to resist the devil. We often draw near to the devil. We need to draw near to God. We continue on. The second part of verse 8 says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The next way that we submit, another way is that commitment to purity. That if we are double-minded, we think one way, the way of the world, and double-minded one way, the way of the word, we have to... Ask for purity to be able to say, no, I want my thoughts, my words, my actions, how I am when others see me, and how I am when no one sees me, to be consistent. That John Wooden talks about this idea that reputation, having a good reputation, is good because that's what people think of you, but character is who you are when nobody's watching. So if you just have a good reputation without good character, that makes us a good actor. It doesn't make us a good believer. 
And so what does it look like for us to have a moment in which we ask for true purity in all that we say, all that we think, and all that we do, as opposed to getting our hands dirty and being happy with it and saying, oh, I just stumbled again. It's okay. The next thing we see is after purity, the next section, verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Does it mean that we are stuck in mourning, that we only mourn, and that's it? No, what it means is that when our hands are dirty, when we've fallen short, when we've lacked purity, we don't just say, oh, my hands are dirty, I guess that's fine. We grieve, and we mourn, and we weep. And we wail because we recognize truly that we've underestimated our own badness and we are in need of a savior to show us what a new life looks like. Blessed are those who mourn for they will find comfort rather than blessed are those who are always comfortable because in the end they end up mourning. Then lastly, we see this idea of verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. Humility. Living a life of humility as opposed to elevating ourselves, to thinking that we have it all figured out, that because we live in a culture where we have money, we have resources, we have a certain semblance of, <clears throat> excuse me, of self-control in which we believe that, you know, okay, in the end, God, I, I love God, but I don't need him because I can, I still have food on the table, I still have a job, I still have all these things. We have a semblance of our own control in our lives. And so instead of, humbly asking for whatever God wants for us, we all too often end up thinking that we know what's best. So instead of asking God, God, do with my life what you wish, we say, God, here's what I wish, now do it. We want him to approve our plans rather than to offer our plans up to him, which points us to something we'll hit on in a couple moments, verse 13. But before we get there, verses 11 and 12 say this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? As we learned last week in your notes, as we learned last week, the words of our mouths will prove the change in our hearts. That if we've truly been changed, we are not the people who just go and judge somebody else, especially a brother and sister, and harshly destroy them. Because if we've truly been changed, then God has already removed the plank out of our eye in order to help with the speck in theirs. He's already done the work so that we could come alongside a brother or sister, but not say and attack them and just tear them down when they fall short. Here's something else that we learn that we often do, that we often judge somebody else based on their actions. They messed up, they did this, they were wrong, that's bad. We often judge ourselves by our intentions. Oh, I, I, I didn't mean to do that bad thing, I, I, I'm really good, I, I just I stumbled, I struggled, I had a hard time. And so we're harsher on others because of their actions when our actions might be the very same ones, but we judge ourselves on our intentions. I meant to do a good thing, and I just made a mistake. But we can lambast somebody who's fallen short while showing ourselves all the grace, even though we know the intentions of our heart and we underestimate our own badness. So what does it look like? What does it look like for us to see that our words of our mouth, that we don't tear people down, 
that we don't judge them unfairly. Now in Matthew 7, we, taught, we alluded to this, there is a way of looking at fruit and saying, no, this is, it comes from a good tree. That we can judge the fruit based off of the tree. We can look at the fruit of someone's life and either say, you are walking with the Lord and I can see the good fruit, or you say you are, but the fruit of your life seems to be opposite of that. And in that time comes, or if that time comes, then we come alongside them, walk alongside them, and as Paul talks about, to kind of come alongside and reconcile and, and be someone who walks in journey with someone who's fallen. So the words of our mouth prove the change in our hearts. Are you, are we, am I, are we judging others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions? And in so doing, being harsher to others and being in judgment of the law rather than recognizing that we need to be able to follow the law that Galatians 6.2 says. The law of Christ is bearing one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, we looked at that there's no third position. We looked at the call to submission through verses 7 through 12. Now, as we close our sermon, as we have the last section there, it's the idea of the warnings to opposition or sorry, the warnings of opposition, that the next few verses show us some things that we must be warned about, be aware of, be cognizant of, because if we keep going in the direction that we're going, then we're going to find ourselves more often than not in opposition to God rather than submission to him. The first one that we see is be warned. We are not in control of our lives. We hit on this a moment ago. We think that we have it all together. We think that we can make the things we want to work out the way we want to work out. We think that we are the masters of our own souls and the determiner of our own fates. Verse 13 through 16, James says this, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go do this or to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Does it mean that you can't have plans or a bucket list? No, I still want to go to the equator. I still want to know what it's like. But does it mean that we just say, God, bless my plans? Because we recognize that many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. That Many are the plans of man's heart, but in the end, they may lead to destruction. That God as our good, good father will show us the way, will walk alongside us. So instead of saying, God, bless the thing that I want to do, we say, God, what do you want to do in me? Because that position of submission is one that provides blessing beyond all recognition. And we get to experience that life. So be warned, you are not in control of your life. Neither am I. So we can either... Be in opposition and fight that. Or we could be in a position of submission and accept it and see the road and the way that God has for us and what he wants for our lives. Because his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, and he could do things greater than we could ever hope for or imagine. Verse 17, a very convicting verse. It says this, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This tells us to be warned that we can sin by commission and omission. We can sin by commission and omission. What does that mean? Commission, sins of commission are things that I commit. They are bad things I knowingly do. 
I choose to do this. I choose to ignore God's word. I choose to lambast somebody. I choose to do these things. That is a sin of commission. And that's the kind of sin that we talk about all of the time, that we see all of the time, but it is not the only kind of sin. Of course, we can sin that way, but we can also sin by omission. That means that we omit. We don't do the good things we should do. There are bad things that we do, commission. There are good things we don't do, sin of omission. And we see this in Joshua 7. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Achan is someone who he ended up, after the, the Jericho fell, all the things were devoted. There were certain things that were devoted to go to the Lord. Achan took some of them and hid them inside of his tent. The next, you know, very shortly thereafter, there's a battle at Ai. And it was one that the Israelites should have routed after beating Jericho, but they lost. They lost 36 people's lives were ended that day. And Joshua cries out, why is this happening? And God says, someone took of the devoted things that were meant for me. And so they draw, they cast lots, and it goes from which tribe to which clan to which family, all the way until when it's Achan standing in front of everybody. And he said, did you take it? He said, yes, I did. He was someone who had the sin of commission. He committed a wrong thing, and he was stoned to death. Yet, his family, who didn't steal, was also stoned to death that day because they knew what they should have done. They didn't do it. That it's just as much of sin to not do the right thing as it is to intentionally do the wrong one. Verse 17 if someone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, that is sin for them. Be warned. We're not in control of our lives. Be warned. We can sin by commission and omission. And be warned. How we understand in your notes, wealth and poverty will testify to our understanding of God's heart. This one takes a few moments to unpack, so bear with me. As we look here, Verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, when he says rich people, I mean, we have to be really honest about this. Every single one of us who is listening right now is considered a rich person. Maybe not in comparison to each other, but in comparison to the world where a large majority lives on one or two dollars a day. It's less than we spend on coffee. That's what they have for the whole day. They have to walk miles to, to be able to get water or they have to live a life that we can't really even understand. And so he's talking to, to rich people. That's all of us. So don't look at your neighbor and say, well, I'm not as rich as this person or I'm richer than that person. That misses the point completely. Because what the rich people are doing in this passage is they're mistreating people. It's, it's as if they're saying, because I have wealth, these people are less than. I have the ability to take advantage of them and I will. Because what are they going to do? They're so far below me. They don't have enough. They can't fight back. Whatever it is, it becomes something where they use their wealth as a weapon over those who don't have any. 
But our understanding of wealth and poverty must be different than this. Because wealth and poverty isn't purely material possessions. That there's a greater way, or or rather a bigger way, for us to view who has wealth and who's impoverished. That we, if we misunderstand this, can lose sight of what God may want to do, and we lose sight of his heart for his people. Now, there's a book called When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, and they hit a little bit about this. I want to read to you a couple quotations from them. Here's the first one. We generally understand poverty in material terms. We'll sit there for a second. If you think about poverty, you think about the person who's standing on the side of the road holding a sign. You think about the person that's sitting in front of a restaurant hoping that they can get food. Maybe you think about someone across the world who does have to walk miles or who does, uh, doesn't even live in a home that has roof and wall or whatever it may be. We think of it in regards to physical resources or the lack thereof. They continue on though. So logically, We then assume that work among the poor is primarily about leveraging resources or skills. We think it's primarily about they don't have money, so let's give them more money. They don't have the skills to be able to get themselves out of the situation. Let's just do some good skills or use our skills to help them. And again, it's not an evil intention, but what it can become is that we think like the people in James 5, We're the ones that have the resources. We're the ones that have the skills. They're so different than us. Let us help them. And that's it. But it's beyond just giving them money. Is that part of it? Of course. We have those resources. We use them. But that's not the be-all, end-all of what it means to understand wealth and poverty. Because he continues on. But poverty, as defined by those in poverty, is often primarily understood in fundamentally psychological terms. Not material They don't say, I don't have things. They use psychological terms, terms like powerless, shameless, worthless, and others are self-applied. And if we leave that up for a moment, I wonder, no matter how much money's in our bank account, what jobs we have, what careers we experience, I would wager that many of us in this room, regardless of our material resources, have been able to, or have felt powerless or shameful at times worthless, unloved, forgotten, ignored, that maybe the same way that some of us may walk by someone holding a sign and they're in a car, we try not to look, the same way that we walk into a Target or a restaurant and someone has a sign looking for food and we look at our phones instead of looking at a face, and I mention that because I've done those things, that that feeling of being ignored, forgotten, lonely, and broken our psychological terms, and that is what poverty is. It's not not having resources. It's not feeling a right relationship with people and ultimately with God. So whether or not you're poor or rich, we've had this idea. He continues on, or they continue on. Poverty, then, must be understood in creation, fall, redemption terms. That in the creation, life was good. There was a shalom amongst God and Adam and Eve. And yet because of the fall, that shalom, that peace, that way of life was broken. And it's only through the redemption of Jesus Christ that shalom can be restored again. And so he says this, poverty is fundamentally the absence of that shalom. Shalom is all about relationships. Therefore, poverty is fundamentally about broken relationships with God, with yourself, with others, with creation. And it's not fundamentally about the lack of something. And so if we view people who 
are poorer and we say, oh, well, we have the resources, we have the skills, and they're beneath us, we're missing the very basic fact that all of us have brokenness. All of us are impoverished. All of us need shalom, and all of us need a trust in the Savior who can provide it. That all of us come from creation in which life was meant to be good in relationship with God. All of us are victims of the fall and now are partakers of that by sinning and falling short of the glory of God. And yet all of us need a savior that we can receive the gift of eternal life, which is the life of Jesus lived, died, and rose and again so that we may have life and eternal life with him. We are all broken. And once we stop looking at poverty as a financial thing and as a brokenness thing, we recognize that we can build relationships with people rather than just simply give them our money. We can come alongside them because we too have felt this way of broken and forgotten and worthless and powerless and ignored and unloved. And yet, because of Jesus, we no longer have to feel that poverty We can experience the wealth that comes from that he who knew no sin became sin, that he who came from the riches of heaven came down to the rags of a manger so that we could experience the riches of eternal life through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we close with a question. That if we started talking off about wanting to be one foot in the world and one foot in the word and try to straddle the line, and then we realize there's only two positions you can have before God. It's either submission to him or opposition to him. If we're in that place, the question is, which position are you in this morning? Not where were you 20 years ago when you gave your life to the Lord for the first time. Not where were you last month when you had a spiritual high. Not where you, where you were last week when you're at Hume Lake or something like that. Where are you right now, this morning? Are you choosing the life that comes with submission to God? Or are you choosing the death that comes from opposition to him? Deuteronomy 28 shows us that this section in James when it says you're either a friend of God or a friend of the world, This is not the only time that God lays, draws a line in the sand and says you cannot straddle it. Deuteronomy 28, we won't read it. Um, It's 68 verses long, so we're not going to read it right now. But verses 1 through 14 list out some of the blessings of obedience. That Moses, it's near the end of his ministry. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And they renew the covenant before God with him and his people. And so he reads out some of the blessings that come for 14 verses about the blessings that can come from obeying God. That they, for example, they'd be high above other nations, that they'd be blessed in the city and the country, that the fruit of the womb and the, their crops will be blessed. They'll be established as a holy people and people will see that they are blessed by God and will fear them. 14 verses of blessings that come with obeying God. Verses 15 through 68. There are other 53 verses. Talk about the curses for disobedience. He says... As an example, you'll be cursed in the city and in the country. The fruit of your womb and your crops will be cursed. There'll be confusion. There'll be rebuke. There'll be diseases. Instead of being established, you'll be defeated and you'll be driven out of your land. That he draws a line and says, you need to choose this day. He says, Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20, when Moses completes the rest of the speech, he says, this day. I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you. In the, Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew way, two witnesses had to be there in order to make something a valid testimony. And so he calls up two witnesses, the heavens and the earth, for no person could be strong enough to be a witness for this kind of decision. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, 
blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, listen, there's a line in the sand and this is what we have to take hold of this morning. There is a line in the sand for each and every one of us that we can either choose to continue to be in opposition to God, to be able to say, I wanna live the way I wanna live. I wanna have my own understanding of me being in control. I wanna be able to keep God at arm's distance and become friends with the enemy. I wanna be able to get my hands dirty and be proud of it. I wanna be able to be on this side of the line. Or we choose to obey, to submit, to recognize that it's going to be hard to submit to God, but it's completely worth it. It's not easy, but very few things that are worth anything are truly easy. But yet, in the midst of our struggle, we recognize that Jesus said that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We can trust in him. And we could choose, not death that comes from disobedience, we can choose life, which comes from obeying God and submission to his will and his word and what he has for us. C.S. Lewis sums it up as we close this way, that there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God in submission, thy will be done, what you want for my life, not what I want, thy will be done. And those who in opposition have been opposed to God their whole lives. And God looks and says, okay, thy will be done. You wanted to be in opposition to me your whole life. You can't just get the blessings of submission to me. There's a line in the sand, one in which all of us must choose a side. Because there's only two positions we can have before God, submission or opposition. I'm going to end the sermon with the two words that Moses said. When it comes to those choices, submission or opposition, choose life. Father, we thank you so much for this day, Lord, and I pray that as we look at this sermon and as we hear and as we wrestle with what you have, Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we are. If we are in a place of opposition to you, Lord, break down our walls and the things that so easily entangle us to fall short of what you want for us. If, if we've come back to church for the first time in a while, God, I pray that we would feel an overwhelming sense that you had us here for a reason that we can no longer straddle the line between the world and the word, but we must choose this day. And God, I pray that everyone in this room or everyone hearing online later chooses life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.